Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 111 with Mark Miller. Mark drops some career knowledge such as one, how to find a career fulfillment by discovering your core talents. Two, big open-ended questions to ask at your next job interview. And three, generational echoes and how we might better understand one another across generations. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep111. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you take a look at some of the other handy resources from the 10 Days to Winning at Work free email course to the Gold Nugget email summaries with the wisdom of each guest and other goodies. So come on down to awesomeatyourjob.com. Here's a quick bit about Mark. Mark Miller's career journey included 22 years at IBM, several thriving tech startups, a painful stint as a high school teacher, a gig raising funds for the Jewish Community Association of Austin, and a near-fatal bicycle accident that changed his perspective forever. An active member of the Launchpad Job Club, Mark found himself counseling friends and associates on their career journeys and finally realized he'd found his vocation. He would use his extensive training experience to help others find careers that they could grow into for the decades that lie ahead. Here's Mark. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thank you. Great to be here. And I won't hold against you that you're an Illinois graduate. <laughs> I'm a Northwestern graduate. You're the only you're the only team we beat back in the 90s. Oh, it's so funny. You know, I don't really mind. I think it's just the Michigan people. Sorry, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Any Wolverines out there. It just sometimes I just feel like in my experience, I've gotten some attitude. And it's like, you know what? I don't even follow sports very closely and, and I'm getting riled up about this now. <laughs> well, when I went to Northwestern in the 1970s, we sucked at everything. I, I only saw us win two games in four years. Mercy. That's in football. Yeah. And I lo- saw us lose to some of the best teams in the country in basketball. Yeah, that happens. That happens. Yep. I got to see Magic Johnson and all the Indiana players and Bobby Knight. And I said, we got clobbered by all of them. <laughs> Well, hopefully you're finding some fun elsewhere. That's right. Well, I've been in Austin for now 39 years, so. Fun. Well, you know, I wanted to maybe kick us off a little bit here. You share a story that you had a near-fatal bicycle accident that really changed your perspective, and that hits close to home for me as my father passed away in a bicycling accident. And it's true. Life really is pretty precious. So tell me, how did that impact you and your perspectives and changing your philosophies on things? Well, a couple of different things, actually multiple things. I had been working for a tech startup. We had been acquired by Lucent. Our options were worthless, but we were getting large retention bonuses. And so I had paid off my house and I was finishing funding my kids' college education. And two weeks after my son graduated from high school, I'm out on my club bike ride. And I come down a hill at about 25 miles an hour. At the bottom was a turn where the road was cambered the wrong way. In other words, it was sloped outward rather than inward. And I couldn't hold the turn. And it was a blind turn. And I hit a Toyota Corolla Mm. head on. And he was going about 30 miles an hour. A buddy of mine in front of me thought a gun had gone off. To say the least, I told the car. Wow. 
I tore up a knee. I broke a hip. I dislocated a shoulder, broke a bunch of ribs, broke the clavicle. I had imprints of the pads in my head, but I had no internal injuries and no brain injuries I'm willing to admit to. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's five days in the BRAC trauma center. I was in the county trauma center. They had me walking on crutches in three days. They just threw three titanium screws in my hip and had me walking out the door in about a week. Wow. I was back on a bike in 10 weeks, flying back to China in four months. Oh, by the way, when I flew back into China, the end of 2002, I flew right smack in the middle of the SARS epidemic, which is the bird flu. But we didn't know it at the time. And of course, China wasn't telling us that there was this major epidemic. And so it's what I call my WTF moment. Why am I doing this? And rather interesting, because it was two weeks after my son graduated from high school, I spent that summer rehabbing with him. Hmm. And as it turned out, that was a blessing. Right. We had a lot of good discussions that summer. Things like, you're going to college. You can eat like crap or you can eat healthy. It's your choice. Your first college roommate, not going to be your best buddy. The odds of throwing two 18-year-old guys in the same room and being best buddies is almost impossible, but you have to respect each other's privacy. And we had all those discussions. And by the way, four years later, when he graduated from the University of Dayton, he actually had listened. All right. <laughs> well, as you will discover, if you have a child who is 18 years old, particularly a male, and you tell them anything, you have no idea what sticks. So if I hadn't had that bike accent, I would not have had the time to discuss these things with him. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a blessing. I was flying back to China. I was going to China regularly. And I'm going, why am I doing this? I'm teaching people how to build leading edge routers and switches. The chipset I worked on back in those days is now in most of the 4G and LTE base stations. It's now owned by Intel. And I'm going, okay, what social viability, what does this mean to society? Well, not a whole lot. So I laid myself off the next year and I went off and taught high school math for two years. Okay. That's like Jaime Escalante over here. Well, I, <laughs> I had taught engineers in 40 different countries. And so I went off and got my math teaching certificate. Lots of funny stories. By the way, schools do not want guys over 40. We don't do what we're told. Ah. But I was highly successful. I went into an inner city high school. You know, 95% of my kids had probation officers. No, that does not mean there were bad kids. And my second year, we had 60 pregnancies in a school of about 2,000 kids. And so I ran into situations that, wow. <laughs> As I said, after I'd been there a few weeks, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. It was essentially a different culture. So yes, all of that came from the bike accident. Yes. And so I guess I'm curious to hear then. So you said the accident sparked you thinking harder about, is this career even make any sense and worthwhile for me to be doing it? Yeah. One of the things, again, I'm a bit older than you. At that point, I had been with IBM for 22 years and I then was working for then Agira Inc., which was acquired by Lucent, which was spun out as Agira Systems. Put it bluntly, I followed the default path through all these years. I didn't make any career decisions. I took what was laid out in front of me. Mm. As a baby boomer, I claim I was raised to be an employee, 
to go work for a father-like company that would take care of me. And after 30 or 40 years, I would retire and go into the sunset. Well, about three quarters of the way through, they moved my cheese. And I then started making career decisions. So I didn't make my first real career decisions until my 40s. Oh, I see. We were raised to go to react. We were raised to say, I would be presented with opportunities and then I would accept those opportunities. I would not seek them out. Okay, understood. Right? I went to work. I was supposed to work for a father-like company. I went to work for IBM for 22 years and they were going to take care of me. And then they moved my cheese in the mid-90s. I hear you. So you, as a millennial, you walk into a completely different world than I walked into back then. When I graduated from college, I was going to go work for somebody. And by the way, a job is a job. You're supposed to go to work. It wasn't supposed to be fun. It wasn't supposed to be fulfilling. And so I developed a whole set of skills that got me paid really well. I turned myself into an extrovert. I'm actually a big-time introvert. I see. I'd love to hear you reflect a bit on something you had put out there on your website, which really intrigued me, is you said, most people don't really know what makes them happy at their core, what fulfills them. And you said before, you know, jobs weren't supposed to be fulfilling. But tell us, you know, here now, how does one come to know what really fulfills them and find some of that in the career world? Yeah, it's rather interesting. In my generation, we were told, go get a job, you know, go get a paycheck. It's not supposed to be fun. After 40 years, you can retire and then things will be fun. Generation X saw us go through that and saw their parents go through that. And they said, you know what? I'm going to work really hard. And when I'm successful, I'm going to be happy. Well, that didn't work. Your generation, which is my son's generation, we told you to follow your passion. The money will follow. Well, that didn't work either. So the point here is work and passion and what fulfills them, there has to be a cross-section of what society needs and what you love to do. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is to get really aware of your core talents and build skills on top of those core talents. So on my website, I have a quote from Larry Bird. And I'm presuming you know who Larry Bird is. Mm -hmm. If you remember, Larry Bird was not a good athlete. He was big. He was slow. He couldn't jump. But his comment was a winner is someone who understands what their God-given talents are, works the bejeebies out to build skills to make themselves into a winner, something like that. And I claim that probably his talents were great eyesight and hand dexterity. Mm -hmm. which he then made himself into a great shooter and passer. Okay. The key problem is we tend to forget that we have talents because we start developing skills because we get paid for them. And by the way, burnout occurs when you overuse skills that are not tied to your innate talents. Okay. Yes. Right? I don't think I've heard that articulated before, but it's resonating. Yeah. Right. So the key thing here is, and the way I do it with most of my clients, which tend to be over 45, is go back to your childhood. What did you do that you couldn't get enough of? Because when we're kids, we don't put all the filters on that society puts on us or we put on ourselves because of society. Okay. 
right? I've got a good buddy who's an engineer. And the only reason he's an engineer was he scored so high in math as a junior in high school back in the 1960s that he was told, go forth and be an engineer. Yeah, okay, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's the only, and he did it for the next 40 years. And by the way, made himself really miserable. He's good. It just doesn't make him happy. Okay, so you're finding the intersection between what the world needs, what you're good at, and sort of what you enjoy doing there. Yes, you don't get everything you want. This is particularly true. I have a lot of clients who tend to be what I call um, closet creatives. They tend to be very artistic and they go off into jobs that they take it and shove it. And what I usually do with them is reinsert that artistic need into their lives. I have one former client who knows to take out her drawing pad twice a day. It makes her happy. Right. And so I guess that brings up my next question is I'm thinking a little bit about when it comes to fulfillment, it seems like some skills, talents, abilities that you've got going for you can sort of naturally show up in your job and career and others don't. So do you have any perspectives on how you go about thinking? What should you be looking for to get covered or met in your job versus elsewhere? Yeah. Part of is understanding what are your core needs. And I can go into a whole, I use the Berkman assessment with a bunch of my stuff layered on top of it to kind of dig into that and, and to get you to understand when you've been the happiest and when you've been the most miserable. By the way, this works very well for those of us who've been working 20 plus years. We know when things really have sucked and when things have been really good. And if you, when you start understanding why, then you can get down to your, your needs. I work with a lot of clients to develop open-ended questions. So when they go talk to somebody, they know what they're listening for. Okay. So I'll use the example. I don't do well with bosses. I've never done well with bosses. And other than I have the worst boss ever now, me. Okay. But so I know that if I went into someone and said, uh, tell me about your management style. If they immediately come in and say, yeah, we're going to measure you every week. I know very well to say goodbye. All right. Right. And it's to learn to have the nice probing questions, big open-ended questions. An open-ended question is something that can't be answered yes or no. And knowing what's the message you're listening for. Tell me more. Well, you know, I'll use example. I have one client who I refer to as my um, structured anarchist. He appears very, 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 very structured. Every hair is in place, clothing. He's very rule oriented. He's been a former CFO. And by the way, the problem is the rules have to be his. In other words, he's really good at coming in and creating order out of chaos. And when he's done creating the order, he needs to get the heck out. And so what I got him to do is start asking, okay, what does this job entail? And if it's going in and solving problems, then he knows to listen for that. If it means to, oh, solve the problem and then run it, the answer is nope. He needs to find chaos, fix it, and then move on. Okay. And we talk about those open-ended questions. Part of the value is not only getting more information because it's more than yes or no, but I'm imagining it's also that many questions, it feels like there's an implied right answer. Like, I should say yes to this. Whereas if it's open-ended, they can just honestly answer it and you can assess, does that fit what I am looking for? And what did he fail to say there? Yeah, I use the camp method of negotiation. By the way, it's a book called Starting With No. 
And in there, it's a negotiation technique, but it works very well with careers. And that is when you go in talking to a prospective employer, you're probing for pain points. You want to find out what hurts. And in that process, if you can get them to open up, number one, you can do a better job of selling yourself. Two, you'll figure out whether this is a good fit for you. In other words, do they have problems that you know how to solve and or want to solve? And three, you know, I like to say one of my favorite questions is what keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. Because what you want to do is you want to dig in. I like to say, and I do this with my clients, I want to poke their underbelly. I want them to open up and I want to know all the bad stuff because number one, that allows me to position myself. But more importantly, it says, do I want to work there? Let me, let me add one. This is like dating in marriage. It's two ways. Unfortunately, so often when we go in, we do like we date and I'm sorry, it's been 40 years since I dated. We just don't want to get rejected. Right. Indeed. So it's more so about defensively ensuring you don't get rejected rather than offensively assessing, is this right for me? You got it. Okay. And that's problematic. And so when you ask that question, what keeps you awake at night, you clearly, you're talking about worries and anxieties and not that I'm watching too many episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Hulu. (laughs) Do you have some additional kind of add-on probing questions that go with that? What keeps you up at night question? Well, one of the big ones is, Well, number one, why are you hiring for this position? Why is the position open? And (laughs) we can't keep anyone in it. They say they're on the edge of their sanity. Well, if they say, well, the last guy quit. Okay. If he got promoted. Okay. Oh, it's a brand new position. Oh, if it's a brand new position, why did you create this position at this time? Why now? Okay. Right. And again, I like to say is all I'm trying to do is poke them and keep on poking, and keep on asking questions. And by the way, you will impress them if you ask really good questions. Oh, certainly. And I know that when interviewing a candidate, if you say, do you have any questions for me, and they have like nothing or one or two generic things that could be found on the website, I am the opposite of impressed. Yes. Yeah. You should walk in. I always have, you know, clients coming in with 10 to 15 questions that are related to their core needs. So they can go in and asking about management style. One of the classic ones is how do you show your employees that you value them? That's great. Right. And by the way, we all want to get stroked differently. We all want strokes and we all want strokes, different strokes. And I can break that down for you if you want. And how frequently we want those strokes is very, very different. And by the way, it's very generational. Well, I was going to ask next, you know, about the generational piece. You work mostly with boomers, but you've also interacted, you know, up and down the line with millennials. And so what have you observed as some key differences in this game by generation? Well, I do this multi-generational workshop. And one of the key things I always tell people, I call these generational echo effects. And that is when everyone leaves home, you do one of two things. You either do exactly what your parents told you to do, or you do the exact opposite and rarely anything in between. And so I'll use the example, my parents' generation, my father served in World War II. He was born around 1920, very loyal to his government, 
save money like crazy. My generation, I'm a boomer. We went through Watergate in Vietnam. We didn't trust government worth a damn. We also spent every last dime we had. My generation, we were hyper-competitive. So what do we do to our kids? Everyone gets a blue ribbon. Everyone gets a participation trophy. We were raised to be very private. Our kids created Facebook. So you get all these echo effects. So I claim your generation, and this is the challenge. We keep on expecting you to be like us. And the reality is you are the echo of us. All right. And you're saying some of those echoes look identical and some are the opposite. Well, one of the things you have to look at each generation is these are not homogeneous generations. In other words, not everyone behaves the same. So one of the things you have to look at is you you have to look at each individual and understanding there are going to be differences. And by understanding generational norms, I can have a better idea how to ask. So when I didn't see my boss for six weeks, ooh, that was good. If you don't see your boss for six weeks, most millennials ago, they're looking for the constant stroking. Now, it's not like they need to be praised all the time. They just need doing a good job, be quick, short, but they need feedback. One of the key differences, we were very comfortable not being included in decision-making at work. The bosses went in the back room, made the decisions. Most of your generation, you want to be involved in the decision-making. That's a real difference. And by the way, a lot of that comes from the way you were educated. So my generation, we were educated and we were supposed to sit in the corner and memorize stuff. You were educated in groups. It was all group learning. So the dynamics in which we were raised were really very different. And though, therefore, what we expect and how we want to be treated at work is very different. And by the way, it drives us nuts. Okay. <laughs> or, as I said, you is the way you is because we made you that way. I hear you. Well, so can we wrap up by maybe sharing sure. what are some key perspectives or tips you'd offer to ensure that we minimize the chance of bumping into career dissatisfaction? Well, number one, you got to keep track of who you are and what's enjoyable. And by the way, that changes through your life. You know, what I enjoyed when I was 25 is not what I enjoy today. Two, we live in a world that is changing and is changing fast. I did a blog post last year called, Has Your Job Been Smacked? S-M-A-C, Social, Mobile, Analytics, and Cloud. Your job will be affected by one of those, if not multiple of them. You have to understand where things are moving. And companies will no longer train you to stay up to date. Okay. So you have to both understand how you are changing to how is the world changing and how does that intersect? In other words, I grew up in the world of where you choose a career, one, and you're done. The folks in your 20s, you're going to change careers multiple times over the next 30 or 40 or 50 years because many of you won't retire until you're 80. And you're going to have to be constantly pivoting as you move forward. You know, think about it. The iPhone was created 10 years ago. 
we didn't have, you know, video in your phone until like six years ago. Yeah. Right. It hasn't been that long. Yes. I had an evil Blackberry until 2010 and they don't exist hardly anymore. Absolutely. It's wild how quickly things are changing these days. Right. And that's going to speed up. It ain't going to slow down. So as far as your career is concerned, you got to pay attention to who you are and what you enjoy. And then what are people willing to pay you for? Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you. Well, you tell me any final thoughts you'd like to share before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh, sure. I can't tell you the number of folks I deal with who are my age who don't know who we are because we've so morphed our behaviors to make ourselves look the way our employers want us to look. And that's something that you and your generation, you need to learn to avoid and not chase after that bright, shiny object. I've worked with a couple of 20-somethings that keep on chasing bright, shiny objects just so they can make more money. It's kind of like the, I've run into, well, I suffer from HD, HD or whatever, you know, and I'm going, you have to drug yourself so you can concentrate. No, you need to find a different job so you don't have to concentrate. Mm, interesting perspective. Right, yeah. right. I can't, I have a really short attention span, which kept me from being a really good programmer. That's fine. I gave up programming and got into training and got into other things because you know what? That's not who I am. I don't need to drug myself to make myself do that. Well, it's a good acid test right there. Right? <laughs> We're not all supposed to be able to do certain things. Okay. Well, that's a nice note there. So now tell me, do you have a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I was looking at your thing. I said, well, my favorite quote is around personal branding. And that is Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. He says, your personal brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Mm -hmm. And I use that extensively in defining when people are trying to understand and explain themselves, who are you? Sometimes you need to go ask other people. In fact, rather interesting, some of my best brand stories for my clients have been written by, of all things, adult daughters. Wow. They will see stuff in mom and dad and will be able to articulate it that their parents can't. Oh, that's good. Thank you. You have to get out of your own head. Now, I'm going to throw in a book at you that I want everybody who listens to this podcast, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Oh, absolutely. That's such good stuff. We had Greg on the show a bit ago. Episode 38. <laughs> <laughs> Greg McEwen, Essentialism, yep. fantastic work. Yeah, I've had multiple clients go through that and has changed their lives. The other book I really like I've worked clients through is Positive Intelligence. Some good reading. And I primarily use that to get people out of stress. Oh, thank you. When people are really under stress and they're really miserable, no one's going to hire them. Uh, makes sense, certainly. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app or thought framework you use a lot? Yeah, well, I base most of my work on the Berkman assessment. Uh, it's B-I-R-K-M-A-N, and you can go to berkman.com. It is by far the best assessment. I call it Myers-Briggs on steroids. Myers-Briggs will tell you how you behave. The Berkman will give you, number one, how you behave, and then how you want to be treated in that same behavior. Okay. So that's where I come up with my structured anarchist, my stealth competitors, my closet creatives. You know, I'm a closet introvert of where we behave one way, but that's not really who we are. We've changed our behavior because we get paid more. Okay. 
And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that really contributes to you being awesome at your job? Sure. Again, another good book for you is Quiet by Susan Cain. It's on introversion. And one of the things she talks about in the book is restorative niches. And what restorative niches are, are doing things that restore you and schedule them into your day. I have another client where she has learned to take knitting breaks during her day. When she knits, it turns the brain off. That's fun. And it's to find those things that restore you. I had a client who had to present like six times in two days. And what I had him do between each session was not to stay at the conference, could go back to his hotel room and turn on his tunes, you know, turn on his music and sit for about a half hour to 45 minutes just listening to music. Perfect. Thank you. And would you say there's a particular quote from you or nugget that you share that folks particularly seem to resonate with and write down and want to keep and use? Yeah, it's <laughs> the one that most people remember from me is resonates with my generation. And that was I was raised to be an employee to go work for a father like company that would take care of me. And then they moved my cheese. Mm -hmm. And you will find that many of my generation don't really understand that that's just the way we were raised. And it's one reason why boomers are, we are becoming entrepreneurs at a much greater rate than any other generation. Mm -hmm. To some extent is because we have to, but others is the fact that, wow, I'm now free to go do this. Lovely. And tell us what would be the best way for folks to contact you or learn more? Sure. Go to careerpivot.com. You can reach me there either by hitting the contact button or you can email me at Mark, M-A-R-C, my mama knew how to spell, at careerpivot.com. And on the top of my webpage, there's a phone number. You can call me. All that's, right. that's not usually found very often on websites anymore. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you. And how about a final challenge or call to action that you'd issue to folks seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Well, the one thing that I challenge people is number one is know thyself and understand. And so I'll use the example. My bicycle accident was what I refer to as a moment of clarity. We have different events in our life that cause us to become clear. I claim we look at life through filters and there are various different times when those filters come down. Some of those are births, deaths, when we get hurt, when we get laid off, when we get hired, when we get married, when we have children. All of these tend to get us to start looking at life a little differently. And you can go back to those times and reflect and understand, okay, what was really important? Because we tend to forget that. We as I said in the opening, most people don't know what makes them happy at the core because we convince ourselves that if we make more money or, you know, if I do this, I'll be happy. Well, it doesn't always work that way. Mm, I hear you. Okay. Well, Mark, thanks. It's been so much fun. I wish you lots of luck and keep on rocking. Well, one of the things I want to tell everybody is I have a new book coming out. And it's Repurpose Your Career, A Practical Guide for the Second Half of Life. It's actually the second edition of that book. And it'll be out, I should have it out for pre-order on March 15th. And you can get pre-release 
preview chapters by going to careerpivot.com slash awesome. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. I hope you found those questions useful and to prompt some great reflection. And if you want to check out that book or other resources mentioned here, along with the transcript, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep111. And I do recommend, if you haven't already, please push that subscribe button so you don't miss hearing from folks like our next guest, Dr. Jenny Brockus, has some really cool science associated with what makes our brains work their best and not their best. So hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 